Hey everybody, welcome to Killer Serial. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. And uh, we are here to talk about awesome TV, often from a spiritual slash theological vantage point. Sometimes that's easier than others. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've stretched it a little bit, but it is not difficult on this one because we are we're doing a post-mortem of a series that only this week it was announced would not be picked up for a fourth, fourth season. season. We're talking about crashing on HBO. Developed by Pete Holmes and Judd Apatow and interest, you know, you know, you wouldn't think uh, Judd Apatow would get many things canceled after three seasons. And it, you know, because it's HBO and it's not an, a network, we don't really know what numbers crashing did. You know, of course they don't, explain why a show got canceled um well it's always interesting too even when you kind of the terminology these days with so much good television and so many options when you you think about canceled versus like just not renewing it you know like we're just we're not going to pick this up like what what what's their overall strategy too on top of uh you think of these platforms on top of viewership what what's their what other shows are in development? What are they giving a shot? You know, it feels like to me three seasons on any platform or network these days feels like an accomplishment. Yeah. You know, but I think you asked me a good question earlier. Like what, and I think the flip side of that is what is success in this new environment? You know, right? funny, like what? There was a funny exchange between Judd Apatow and Conan O'Brien and Apatow said, well, it's not really canceled. We're just going to stop making it. And O'Brien asked, well, what stopped you from making more? And he said, they told us we should never make any more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, let's say, I mean, here's the thing. It's funny because I think that you and I, based on where we come from in like the 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 world of Christian pop culture we've of course known about pete holmes for a long time not just that he was a stand-up comic but that his backstory was he grew up in a real conservative evangelical family um and you know had like evangelical uh undergrad education um and had you know, either been a youth pastor or planned to be a youth pastor. And that when he, when he, when he transitioned into stand-up comedy and became a little more well-known that he made a lot of like, uh, don't I remind you of your church youth pastor jokes, which obviously a lot of his audience appreciated. And then when he became a little more mainstream, had his own talk show briefly that he would have Rob Bell on and that he and Rob Bell had become good friends. It's something that they've both talked publicly about. And, that and of course, same, he still has his podcast, right? Same goes for his podcast uh, where he's, you know, even like uh, when I was working at a Christian publishing house, we got one of our authors. Well, we didn't. I mean, the author got himself booked on Pete's podcast. We made it uh, weird. Yeah, which has a strong listenership and he got there because of we he got there because of the Rob Bell connection that's how he got him on you know we, we've been following him and then th- this is obviously like to get a show on HBO for Pete Holmes is like 
a huge, massive breakout into the broader cultural scene. So the show itself is semi-autobiographical, which is, I think, one of the interesting things, but also maybe somewhat confusing things about it. And it's not, you know, like Seinfeld was semi-autobiographical. You know, Jerry Seinfeld uses his own name, but all the other people on the show are actors using other names in a totally fictional universe. And Crashing was not like that in that it uh, Pete uses his own name. And then you've got this whole list of comics, some of whom appear as themselves and some of whom appear as actor, as characters. Yeah, playing a character, yeah. But based loosely on themselves. You know what I mean? So what what was your overall, before we, you know, this is kind of a post-mortem or an obituary for this series. um, And I do want to get into his specific portrayals of Christianity because I do think they're interesting. But like, what was your overall take on the show? So we're assuming that, again, that people who listen to this have watched the series already. Um, and so there's no need to kind of, kind of hammer out the plot points. I mean, it's basically him navigating a breakup, right? A divorce, his wife's cheating on him. He's also trying to pursue a career in comedy and that has its ups and downs. And I think you might've mentioned this in a previous podcast about, uh, there was kind of a rhythm to the show and you could appreciate that rhythm or push back against it where, you know, one episode ends with a high, the other ends with a low. And that kind of defined the series. And I felt like it was something that's probably uh, true to that experience of trying to make it. You know, I think uh, you and I are, are working on a separate project and you kind of, before we even started recording today, uh, you referenced that kind of, that feeling of stagnation, so to speak. Um, and, and those kind of highs or moments for excitement or optimism pop up in, in the in surprising ways. And I think, uh, and somehow trying to navigate between those is really where kind of where the career is, right. Where the, the spiritual and emotional components of, of building a career in entertainment exist. Right. And I think you see that a lot. in the, uh, the series finale, uh, which was this past Sunday where Pete has this massive break, but it comes, comes up, about in the most awkward and humiliating way. So I I kind of appreciated that. I also felt like overall, and maybe we'll return to this in your discussion of the series uh, use of Christianity or portrayal of Christianity, but I felt overall there were some kind of large spiritual themes to each season. And I guess quickly, I would just say I really enjoyed the show. I, I love the series, but it felt like, kind of looking back big picture at each season, Pete takes different approaches to his career and to life in general. And it felt like that first season was him trying to still play by the rules of the faith or at least kind of culturally accepted ways of being navigating his career, being in relationships, whether or not he's going to fully break up with his wife or divorce, you know, really trying to, it felt like he was just simply trying to play by the rules. Or, or, another, this, or another way to say it is he was, he was trying to have it both ways. So he wanted to have like the, be married to his 
wife whom he met at an evangelical school and never swear on stage and not smoke pot and not drink and also be a comedian who's like working the clubs in New York City every weekend and going to every open mic night he can. So, he, you know, he, that was the tension in the first season, right? He wanted, wanted to have the best of both worlds. And it's still a very legalistic approach to both, right? right? At least the tenor of his, his approach to both of those worlds. Whereas the second season, it felt, at least to me, uh, very much like he was kind of throwing all that to the wind and kind of living into the second, that kind of second identity, right? Like he was less concerned with his upbringing and his past, or at least honoring that. Right. It was almost this kind of ecclesiastical or Ecclesiastes approach to uh, life. Right. Where everything is vanity in a way, even though he's still desperately pursuing this career in comedy. And I know that's probably talking about that season uh, too simply. But and then I think we see something in the third season, which is is maybe a, a, a melding of the two where I feel very much like his participation in that Christian comedy tour uh, was an attempt to re-engage that part of his life with some added wisdom. And I felt like the jokes that he told in those scenes, his presence on the stage in those scenes felt very real. uh, And in some ways were, were certainly just as, but maybe funnier than other bits that he did throughout the series. And granted, as you mentioned earlier, this is obviously from my perspective of having grown up in that world. And like Pete, don't may not necessarily identify with it anymore. But there, there, there seemed to be a wisdom at work in him in this third season that was denied by people on both the mainstream and the faith-based side. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And in the third season, he does that Christian comedy tour, which like gives a lot of laughs, but he's also feels like he's not being honest. He's not being honest with his comedian friends back in New York. Cause he's kind of hiding the fact that he's doing this evangelical tour. This isn't just a Christian comedy tour, but this like evangelical, you know, stuff. And, and like the, the church he performs in or the church he goes to with his, his wife, sorry, the church he goes to with his girlfriend and his mom and dad is a church very famous church on the East Coast, Grace Chapel in Lexington, Mass, that I've been to before. And, you know, there aren't a lot of evangelical megachurches in New England. <laughs> so that's one of them. And that's a very well-known right. church. And, you know, so for those of us in the in crowd, when he goes to these, and you can just imagine him, he's at these uh, mega churches and he's at these Christian colleges, you know, you could almost name the, the schools he's at, but he's also not really like, he's obviously tailored his material for the crowd. He's making really good money. And then he goes out, he meets at a morning radio show, another New York comedian he knows, and they go out. Yeah. Jessica. Yeah. Jessica Kearson, and they, which I think, yeah. And they go out for lunch. That's really a turning point in the, I mean, it, it's funny if you were to start to, if you were to take that third season and and map it out in like three acts, 
that would have been the conflict and the conflict resolution right there when she when she lets him off the hook and basically is like you don't have to apologize for doing a christian comedy tour well she's a she's the wisdom in that moment it's not from the comics back in new york who would uh kind of ostracize potentially we don't know that because we don't see it but that's pete's fear right that that community is going to ostracize him there's also the woman who's managing the tour who tells him that he can't say pissed on stage uh even though it's a bodily you can't say because it's a bodily function right you can't talk about that either so i think you see two opposing sides and then and then i think pete and jessica fall in the middle where she says to him and i think she sums up what at least what i've seen a lot of working in in film and especially working with uh and in conversation with a lot of christian filmmakers or people who are people of faith who work in the industry a gig's a gig right yeah like he's making more money than any of them and she's like don't be embarrassed about that and i don't i think i also think that what pete does on stage uh, that gets him fired killed with the crowd right yeah the crowd loved it yeah Yeah. but the woman that kind of legalistic manager is worried about yep Yep. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't know that in that moment and you, you could disagree. I mean, I, I don't know in that moment that the fault lies with Pete. Yeah, I, I think it or the character right in the show. I think he is. The victim is the wrong word here, but he, he is a he's a victim of that community. Right. That or that, like you said, that gatekeeper. Yeah, I thought I just thought that was an interesting episode. I think that was episode seven, uh, where they go on the horse and buggy ride and have amazing soul food lunch. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So one of the things about this, and and you know, to talk about that comic, there's so many comics who do um, cameos on this show, either as themselves or as slightly altered versions of themselves. It's interesting, isn't it? This subgenre we have right now of breaking down comedy and how comedy works. It's like the the study of comedy. You know what I mean? And so you've got it on Mark Maron's podcast on a regular basis. You've got it on Conan O'Brien's new podcast, Conan Needs a Friend, which immediately shot to the top of the podcast charts. You had it even in like Steve Martin's memoir. And all these comedians are writing memoirs now. I think it you know, other comedians have written them in the past, but one of the most powerful, I think, is Steve Martin's. And then, you know, Steve Martin wrote this memoir, Born Standing Up, and then he has refused to either talk about or do comedy since. He's like, that was my last word on comedy. I've explained how it worked, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and this show, too, it's like a behind the curtain thing about comedy, which is, I wonder if that's, you read a lot of stuff about um why hbo canceled it even though its viewership was up but they talk about it being a niche show for hbo which is funny because i think a lot of shows on hbo are kind of niche. yeah (laughs) yeah like high maintenance yeah that's that's landing in middle america for sure yeah i mean that's the funny thing right how niche do you think that is to be this like in some ways maybe he paid a little bit too much homage to all of these comedians because the, the original angle on the show was here's this struggling comedian in New York city and he crashes on other comedians couches. And that's the, that was the first, that was like the foil in the first um, episode. I mean, in the first season was he's, he's 
oh, there's a famous, co- oh, like there's a famous comedian. He's on Sarah Silverman's couch. There's a famous comedian. Like, and obviously in that first season, especially Artie Lang really plays his alter ego, you know, really is the devil on his shoulder, pushing him to, to let go of his Christian inhibitions and give himself over to the New York stand-up scene, whatever that may entail. And obviously people know like in real life, Artie is, you know, he's like a Howard Stern guy. He's been arrested multiple times. He's been in and out of treatment and he plays like a version of that on the show. And Pete is this straight, stiff, you know, it's, it's, it's an old, it's an old comedy bit, you know, the straight man and the, and the crooked man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm no historian of comedy or, you know, comedy scholar, but it feels like we're living, at least for those of us who don't, for people who don't live in Los Angeles or New York, it feels like we're in a in a great time for comedy because of the proliferation of, of streaming platforms. You know, it seems like Netflix yeah. releases a new stand-up special every day, right? Or there's a new there there's a new kind of sketch comedy series on every corner, you know. Improv is popping up everywhere. It's particularly strong here in LA and in, and in New York. So I, I think maybe that accessibility, you know, obviously Comedy Central continues to do on their network and on their streaming platform, uh, and then just social media as well as a, as an outlet for people to to post comedy, whether that's through you know, tweets or video or whatever. And so I wonder if what you're talking about this, the ability to talk about it or the desire to hear professionals talk about it increases with that kind of increased exposure, right. Um, or the, the desire to kind of peek behind the curtain on something like crash, all those kind of behind the scenes shows tend to do well, which kind of surprised me that, they didn't choose to keep crashing for another season. I wonder if I've had some people who talked about the show, the series, and they found it a bit repetitive. Uh, I wonder if you feel like that's a fair criticism because does what has, by the end of the series, Pete yeah. has, he's got a spot at the cellar. He can call in, which feels like a huge thing for him, obviously. He's had, uh, right. you know, he opened for Mulaney by accident, but in many ways, his life is still fairly similar to. No, I think you're right. I mean, he really hasn't gotten anywhere big. He's gotten little moments of stardom, like when he was the, you know, the the fluffer for the Rachel Ray show. Um, right. Wasn't that it? And he was getting the. And, and but then he did some off color jokes and got fired. You know, he's doing the Christian comedy tour. He does some off color jokes, gets fired. He has a college tour, which is probably his. Right. You know, he did. He he didn't right. get fired he from get, that, he, right? Like that's he a, takes a his win for him. current girlfriend to see to a party celebrating his former girlfriend. He doesn't seem to get less naive as the show goes on, which I could see why somebody would say it was repetitive like he's not really evolving now he's not sleeping on people's couches anymore but he's still kind of going whichever way the wind takes him so when cat blows into his life he's like 
having sex with her, you know, on, on a, on a, like a children's changing table in a lavatory in a public restroom within 10 minutes. So he, he, he's not like growing wiser and more thoughtful. He's still kind of a dumb, silly, naive hick. Well, that's a, that's a stretch, but I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Like, I, I mean, I know he's not actually a hick cause he's not from like the middle, middle America or something, but he, that's how he comes off. And even, you know, you think of some of the, the scenes where he's getting roasted, either he's in, he's at an actual roast against his girlfriend or his old girlfriend, Allie, or he's, um, in, you know, sitting with cat in the front, uh, uh, on the, on the front row at the cellar and he's getting roasted from stage from comedians who are on stage and see him in the front row. You know, it's like, he still can't take the roasting that, that kind of thing. So I just think it's, it is, that is interesting. But I think the flip side to that real quick would be, I think the counter argument is that it is repetitive because that's the way life works for a lot of people in that industry, right? You don't have this massive forward and upward trajectory within a matter of, you know, however long the time runs in the series, but let's just say three years. I mean, there are people who are, who are doing these same things for 10, 15 years, right? That is is what it takes to kind of break through. Well, yeah, There's, I mean, that was interesting. Is like the cameos. Do you put that in a series, right? Like, do you yeah. do you? The cameos on that show include Amy Schumer, who is like a worldwide comedy rock star who sells out, you know, basketball arenas, and other guys who are like still doing the seller after ten years and have like never gotten four minutes on the Seth Meyers show. You know, right. they're just like. Right. pounding it out making a living but just like pounding it out doing college tours and the seller yeah it, it's it's but but the, i guess the question is how interested are american viewers in how hard it is to make it as a stand-up comic but i did find it interesting i mean so when it comes to redundancy and i mean reading some interviews with pete Holm, he, he was like well he, he, he this is interesting he would say he said like they often film him doing a stand up bit for an episode and they would film him killing and they would film him bombing so that then when they put the episode together, they had the option of either showing Pete doing well, being up or doing poorly and being down. And it's a little bit like I complained about um, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with the, uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which we quit watching. Because it came so predictable, like one episode she ends up up, and the next episode she ends up down, and the next episode she's up, and the next yeah. episode she's down. And you just get to that point where it's like, I know they want to keep you watching by having you on this roller coaster, but when you're not really like, here's my question for you Were you rooting for Pete to succeed? Because in some ways, you could say Pete's kind of failure, bumbly, kind of pudgy, overweight, lanky, six foot, six inch goofball guy who never quite um, can. He he only does well because he gets lucky, like opening for Mulaney. Are you rooting for him? Is he a protagonist you want to win? That's a really good question. I don't know that I ever thought about that. As I watched the series, I felt like in some ways I was in that regard, I was 
being led along. I think, first off, I love New York City. Love it. And would love to live there for a time someday. Um, I do like stand-up comedy a lot. And, you know, so I think I was tuning in for for not that I didn't find Pete to be a compelling character or that I don't find him funny, but I feel like I was tuning in for a lot of other things. And so rooting for Pete, I don't know that that was something I, I consciously thought of. I was just, I was kind of up and down with him. I don't know if that's lazy viewing, but I, I, I think I see what you're saying. But these are also elements about his life or his personality, his identity that he makes fun of in the comedy too, right? So he uses yeah. that to drive oh, his yeah. – No, that's his that's his, shtick, his own you know, I'm just a goofball. What do I know? Do you? I guess the question would be in watching that series and not whether or not you root for him, uh, do you find him funny? Do you find that character funny? I do find him funny and I found myself laughing out loud at certain points and I – struggle with that because I want characters in the shows I watch to be people I root for. You know what I mean? Like when I, when I was, when I was watching Battlestar yeah. Galactica, I wanted the human race to survive against the Cylon. I'm not kidding. I mean, that's, you know what I mean? Like I, that's what got me to watch it time after time. And like Kimmy Schmidt, I like, I love Kimmy and I love Titus um, and I want to watch that show because I love the characters and I want to see um, what they're going to do next and how they're going to let each other down and ultimately lift each other up. And other shows I really struggle with because I want there to be a protagonist I'm rooting for. And that's hard. To, that's harder and harder in this in this yeah. kind of age yeah. of darker narratives, you know, and it kind is of anti-hero. And, um, so I don't know about like I was rooting for Artie. <laughs> like i want i wanted to pull himself out of his tailspin and for pete to be uh you know a help in that are you were you rooting for leaf dude i was just gonna say here's what's crazy and i thought this as i was watching the final episode knowing that it had been canceled and this was the we need a leaf spinoff this was the series finale but oh my gosh Leaf was my favorite character. Leaf actually evolved at the end. Uh, you know, Pete even recognizes it. He's like, look at you. You're, you know, you're, you're like making sense. <laughs> yeah. He says, he tells him swim. Don't fight. the, Don't try to grab the water. Just float. I just thought Leaf was absolutely awesome. And I agree. We should have a Leaf spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tony. So we're Leaf is our philosophical, uh, new agey counterpoint to Pete's kind of legalistic, maybe the wrong word, but you know, conservative Christianity. Tell me your take on the on the use of or portrayal of Christianity in the series. I know you wanted to talk about that. You know. I, I think what comes through in the series is Pete's I, I've no I have no idea if Judd Apatow or if anybody else involved in the show at a showrunner production direct, directorial level has has any history with evangelical Christianity. I 
think based on the show that Pete Holmes, the creator of the show, not not the not the act, you know, not the actor in the show, has a mixed, you know, an an understandably ambivalent relationship with evangelical Christianity because he doesn't mock it on the on the in the show. He's never it, mean to it. He's never mean to it. He he handles it sensitively and with some care and some empathy, but it is nevertheless one dimensional. You know, it ultimately is the thing that makes his parents look like idiots for his mom asking Kat whether she's wearing a bra. And it's one dimensionality is why he gets fired from the, like basically self-sabotages and gets himself fired from the comedy tour because these Christians just can't handle jokes about the Bible. And I think a lot of Christians would watch that and be like, oh my gosh, if a, if a uh, comedian came to Westmont and did that bit on Abraham and Isaac, I think the kids would probably laugh and think, that's fair game. You know, like that's a messed up story. It's fair game to make fun of it. It's not disrespectful to the scripture to talk about what if Abraham had killed Isaac or whatever, you know? So it's, I think it's a bit one dimensional and it's the limit of the genre. It's a 30 minute comedy, you know, how much nuance and complexity can you actually show for religion in America in that? Yeah, I think that's a fair, I I think that's a fair point you make there, but I, I think it is allowing us to have a conversation about, about that world through comedy and our ability to laugh at ourselves, uh, which I think is, uh, unless it's extremely safe, unless you're talking about potluck uh, lunches, you know, I don't think fundamentalists do a great job of of that kind of self criticism, which is what yeah. which which is what comedy can be, right? Right, but right. It, yeah. so to me, when you talk about one dimensional, I wonder is there is there another dimension to that community? Like that's really in that world. That's all they give you is no, right? They only give you the critical, uh, hyper conservative angle. You know, there's no, there's no that what you're talking about where students like a youth group might find the Abraham and Isaac joke funny. There's not. There, I don't think there is. Maybe it's true for younger generations, but not on the whole. Yeah. So I, I guess I, the danger I'm asking is there any? Is there another dimension to that community? Oh man, I. <laughs> and granted, we're getting off the show here, but I'm. I'd I'm, like to think there is, but you're, you know, you're right in the fact that maybe there isn't. But I, I or, or you're implying that I, I'd like to think there is a another dimension. I'd like to think that. Uh, evangelicalism is evolving. It's unfortunate, of course, that when, you know, every time um, Jerry Falwell Jr. tweets something that's so stupid and and tin-eared, theologically tin-eared uh, about in support of Trump or something like that, that every, like everybody on liberal Twitter goes absolutely crazy. And meanwhile, people who are inside of Christianity are like, I go to pastor's conferences every year. Jerry Falwell Jr. has never been at one of them. Like, he's never... Yeah, that's spoke. a good point. 
He's never spoken at a pastor's conference I've been to. His books have never been for sale at the, at the, in the bookstore of the pastor's conference. Like he's just not a figure people look to except when the Washington post needs like the most crazy evangelical tweets or, or quote supporting Trump or something like that. So the, yeah, I the, guess that's a, that's a fair point. And I think, but I guess what I'm thinking about as well is just in terms of pop culture, uh, which of politics does play a part, but in thinking yeah. about a, a faith community's uh, engagement with comedy or with television or with film, you know, I, I found it, I texted it to you because I was super late to the game, but somebody gave me the book. It's a collection of essays by John Jeremiah Sullivan. And I sent you the link to the GQ article about the creation music yeah. festival that he goes to. Yep. And, and he gives that, and I, we should post a link to it uh, with this podcast because I think it's a little bit, you know, I think Pete transcends at least the, the character in the series when he, the bits that he does on the Christian comedy tour, I think are legitimately funny bits, right? Uh, they're smart, they're insightful, they work for the audience that he's engaging. And I think the bits that he does outside of that space are funny as well. But, you know, Sullivan talks about, for about two pages worth of criticism, the, the Christian rock industry, the Christian music industry, and how it's essentially excellence-proofed itself because it just mimics it mimics what another genre is doing. And it'll, it will never be better than that because people who are the best at that are subtle and they're asking questions or they have doubts and they explore those through their art. And you could never say that Pete Holmes is a Christian comedian, right? In the sense of like DC Talk being a Christian rock band. Right. Because right. He, he can do these other things. He can excel at comedy. I mean, you may or may not like him or his personality or his presence, but he has achieved some success and it's not because he's stuck to a Christian comedy tour. But if you're looking solely at that community from which he comes in the community that really the, the series is only concerned with because of that background and because of its limited narrative scope, I don't know that they have anything else to offer the conversation, which yeah. is, is what it is, but it's unfortunate, you know, pathetic. Yeah, it's pathetic. And, you know, it's we, we could go real deep on this and talk, but go back to, you know, Mark Knowles uh, book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. That's right. The, scan the scandal is that there's no evangelical mind. And since he wrote that, of course, institutions like uh, Christianity Today launched the literary magazine Books and Culture, which subsequently folded because not enough evangelicals were buying subscriptions. But you can say like Fuller Seminary founded the Brem Center for Arts and Culture and Worship to try to counteract that trend. And have they made it? Have they moved the needle? Question mark. Well, there I, I did the Fuller Studios. I learned recently uh, content they created last year count, accounted for 1.2 billion impressions online. So yeah. we always joke about numbers at work. Like if half of that's true, that's still pretty good. So yeah, but is it moving the needle culturally? I don't know. Are there people who are engaging that approach? It look it looks like it, right? It seems like it. Yeah. But also to to the point of the series with comedy, you could take uh, Terry Linval's book, who basically writes the history of comedy 
in the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? Going yeah. back to, to the Old Testament, moving through to today. And, you know, there's a rich history of that. And to not be able to engage that is, is unfortunate. Right. I mean, there's a lot more that could be done. And, and, and we're probably holding Pete and Judd to a standard, you know, that they never could have. Well, I don't, I, I think the, for me, it, you, you look at it one of two ways. It's either you're being critical of that, which I don't think we are. I don't think we're asking the show to be anything else than what it is. I think what it's allowing us to do is to have these conversations. What it can allow people to do is through that window, have a larger conversation about faith, pop culture, humor, and, and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my viewpoints on those things aren't because the, I, I don't think the show suffers because that's not in there. I think it's, it works because it allows you and I to talk about this. You know, we're not watching, I, I don't know, pick another show, pick another network comedy. It's probably not kicking off these conversations. Right. Right. So uh, yeah, it, that, that much I appreciate about it. I'll miss it. I thought yeah, same. I, I think it would have been interesting to see his character really begin to evolve. And it's, it's the rare, it's the rare show, maybe unique, you know, you think about Seinfeld and he, he never, he never got the big break. I mean, I think maybe in the course of the show, he did, you know, a set on the tonight show or something. And that was a real big deal. And they were supposed to get a TV show with NBC that yeah, yeah. fell through. But like he never goes anywhere. He never moves out of his apartment. He never gets the big break. And that show continued to be consistently funny. But that's because it wasn't about him trying to break through in comedy. That was like just happened to be his job. What was funny about the show was the antics of those characters. This show was this show was about Pete Holmes trying to break into big time comedy. And, you know, here, here's what's pretty amazing is that even though they had already sketched out season four, the show ends quite completely at season end of season three. He gets accidentally a, a, a 10 minute bit at gig at, at uh, town hall. He kills. Um, he realizes that he doesn't want to go back to Cat. He really wants to go back to Allie, who is his girlfriend, who who's also a comedian. And it shows them getting together, sharing one another's success, and then kissing and walking down the street. And it's kind of it ends really well, really well. So kudos yeah, I to thought it was, for yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was a sweet a sweet ending. Yeah, and it's streaming. You can revisit it whenever you want to. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones and Ryan Parker. We're signing off, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. All I am is all I need.